What we discovered creating the online course is a staggering 80% of the population has some sort of breathing problem or are breathing incorrectly. But if you're an athlete in training, again, almost no one is breathing correctly for higher performance. The latest science is showing if you're breathing through your mouth while exercising, it's very unhealthy in many ways, but that's not enough. We focus on the mountain athlete because at higher elevation, it adds another element of stress to the respiratory system and to performance. So we tested our breathing methods at 8, 10, 12, and 14,000 feet to solve many of the common problems like headaches and elevation sickness. And we did it through breathing. You'll hear us talk a lot about a closed balance system of breathing because it solves many of the issues athletes face. Of course, that improved breathing for the general population tenfold. That's why we think this is the ultimate online breathwork course. We've only scratched the surface of the benefits of this breathwork course. Visit us at mountainwellness.life to learn more and get your copy of this course today. Mountain Wellness, optimizing human performance to extend longevity for mountain athletes. What up, mountain athletes? Welcome to another episode of the Mountain Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Reed, and I'm joined, as always, with my mountain brother, Mr. Mike Mahina. What's going on, my dude? Oh, California to Montana. Uh, I think this one's going to be also the legend of Crazy Jack. Oh, Mike's alluding to his uh, recent climb up Mount Whitney. Uh, Mike and the the boys had a successful trip. I didn't realize it was getting that close last episode um, because we had talked about, in true Mike fashion, um, decided to do something. But then your window seems to be 30 days. You really like those 30 day, like. I'm gonna I'm gonna decide to do something kind of last minute, uh, which is no no good, no no. Though, I think I, I, I don't like them; they just happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think no. part of it is, and we'll get we'll get to the uh, we'll get to it um, as we you know um, tell the story. Let Mike kind of share his adventure and his experience. But uh, I suspect that the individuals that that call you to go on trips they know how mike is he's very prepared and uh he's got his shit together so um i i I know i feel a lot better when i go on trips with mike just because he he does uh dot his eyes and cross his t's so uh with that who is the crew Who's the team? So, if you remember John from last year, who's always a pleasure to hike with because he has a fear of heights, and so when you get him in certain positions, it, it's incredible to watch him. <laughs> it's incredible to watch him push through. There's few things that of people that you'll meet, I think, that will look at their worst fear and face it head on. Like if they, like for me, it's the ocean. If you would yeah. drop me in a shark cage with great white sharks, I'm going to have an issue. Like I'm going to, I'm going to really struggle with that. And it's that way for him. His knees buckle at, you know, 13,000 feet on the pinnacle. So he's, he's awesome to go with because I, he just pushes through his fear and he just, he has that. He's twice as shedded, shredded this year as he was last year. I, I'm like, John, you're way more fit this year. And he goes, well, I had back. He was fit last year, but he had back surgery. So for him, that was right. Him and, not, and what's, yeah. What's John's background, just for the listeners, uh, for a little bit of reference? Because um, I know yeah. he's not like yeah, some mountaineer or 
um, elite mountain athlete, but he does have some experience marathoning. You know, right? it's it's funny because I I wonder because he doesn't say much about he doesn't talk much at all about his abilities. Like he doesn't think of it. But you could just look at him and go, okay, he's a he's a serious athlete. I mean, he's done marathons. Um, I know he. I think his whole life he's done all kinds of, of events, like all kinds of you know, primarily marathons. I think yeah. some triathlons. Um, a runner. I think he's just an all around guy that just and he works out constantly. Strength and strength and conditioning. I'm sure at least three to four days a week to be in the shape okay, that he so was he's in. Fit. He's yeah, got. He's a, really. Yeah, fit. he's got a good. Baseline fitness, good cardiovascular health from all his running that he's done. So oh, let's just say, and what age? How old is John? He's in his sixties. Um, yeah, he's like late sixties now. Yeah, that's so legit. But I want to um, be that dude. Like okay. when I'm at his age, I'm like, that's how you know. I mean, I'm gonna have to work harder. But you know, we all come into this well, knowing that everybody's an athlete. So it's like, well, so that's the first kind of like, okay, how, am I ready to? Can I move as fast as these guys? Um, and and we talked about John last year a little bit of you know his character. Um, I think it was the backpack he basically had had ordered, or his wife had ordered like a ready to go backpack mountaineering pack off Amazon. Um, and I thought that was really funny. Uh, and then this year, uh, didn't he head out the uh, uh, the day before? Or he went on a hike before and got some blisters before you guys even set out on the trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, cause you, so to understand John, <laughs> you have to understand John. He refuses to listen to anything that I say. I mean, he'll listen, but like I know he's just like, okay, yeah, yeah. Then he just goes on and does what he does. I mean, he's just as totally. And that's, and that's, I've learned that's okay. I, I had to learn that, you know what? Some guys, you just got to let them be because they use their athleticism to power through any, any things that are, are, they're not prepared for kind of thing. He just uses, he just, he just powers through it. So whatever he comes up, that's his yeah. thing. He won't take any gear into the backcountry, like hardly anything he goes, yeah, we just sleep under a rock when it's raining. I'm like, what? <laughs> how are you not comfortable? So yeah, he, uh, we did a couple, again, we had to do those kind of pre-hikes up at Horseshoe Meadow at 10,000 feet to kind of get a feel how everybody's doing. Um, Chad was, a, was, a, was also with us, who was a pilot. He he flies, it's like a, what I call a Commercial boutique pilot. Boutique pilot. Oh, so private. He's wow. Celebrity yeah. and CEO, like the most influential people I can't mention, but he flies those people around the world. And he's an athlete and just a great dude. Like he's, you know, it's John Minor and then Chad And how Minor. old is Chad? He's probably your age, I'd say. He's in his uh, no, actually, he's okay. close to fifty. I'll take that as a compliment because I think of him as younger. But he's he's fifty. He just turned fifty, I think. But again, you know, really good shape. Took it seriously. Yeah. The thing I loved about pilots that I learned is that they're like us with the checklist and have and double checking everything and all the main mundane stuff is so important. So we hit it off right away because I'm like, here's the list. He's like, I love that you put out a list and a video and everything. He goes, I took it all in. John's the opposite. He's like, I'm not doing anything. His pack. <laughs> I looked at his pack that he brought on this trip and it was like a camel pack. It was really small. I'm like, there's nothing in there. There can't be anything in there but water and food or, you know, so... Yeah, I'm like okay, so that's why now I realize why I take all this extra gear, you know, just in case we have trouble. And he knew you were carrying all the the stuff, right. that, just in case. <laughs> he, knows, he knows I'm gonna <laughs> schlep it all up there totally. Uh, and then we uh, had two. What you ended up doing, right? You took care of his blisters with uh, my, you had a little repair kit for blisters. <laughs> yeah. So so 
just before we left, I bought these silicone covers that go over the toe, and we ended up calling them, Chad called them toe condoms, because that's what they look like. <laughs> totally, but, dude. We use them in know. massage therapy. They're, they're, yep, the finger cots, they look like finger condoms. They're hilarious. But they're amazing because uh, you... Okay, so I didn't know how they worked. I thought they looked iffy when I saw them. So I, before I left for Big Bear the week prior, I threw one on my foot just to see if I could, I if I could go with it all day long, and I could. I walked on the, with it on my toe the whole day and forgot it was on, and I so that passed a test for me. You know, if it, if it, if you don't even notice it, so yeah, he had a blister. He decided to, um, they wanted to hike early, so they're you know they they get excited, they start tearing up the the, the uh, horseshoe yeah. meadow. We did a five miles the first day just to get kind of acclimated, see how everybody's doing, and then. The second day, we decided uh, to just do orientation, which is, I call it orientation, which is to go up to Whitney Portal Portal in the daytime, look at everything mm-hmm. around, know where the trailhead is, kind of get a feel for everything. Because when you hit it at night, at yeah, one in the morning, yeah. it's pitch black. Oh, that's right. So, I just, it's kind of fun to give everybody kind of a, a, a Whitney Portal's a cool place. They got a great store there. You got huge pancakes the size of a pizza. Like our, like our remember our pizza in Texas that was huge? Oh, <laughs> my Sealfit? gosh. Dude, they have a pancake yeah. that's like probably 20 inches round, I'd say. 20 to 24 inches round. <laughs> so, anyways, we got... Oh, my um, gosh. Well, they started tearing up the mountain when we got there, and I said, well, we'll just go a mile or two. We got high enough, and I'm like, you know what? I'm saving my energy for 10 hours later when we're going to be hitting this hard. But they wanted to keep going, so I'm like, ah, we'll turn back. So Chad's like, I'm turning back, too, because I think here's the other thing. Chad had he had done some leg lifts the, the same week, some leg lifts at the gym, and his calves were sensitive to the touch. That's how sore they were. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. he's got sore calves and we're about to go 22 miles you know and i'm thinking okay so i'm planning again i'm planning on spending the night there somewhere because someone's gonna struggle um and again like it was one of those miracle things where he could he just kept going and and it didn't become an issue but uh and you're if you remember last yeah yeah john and then we had chad so there is that is chad um are are they related is that yes uh, chad uh that's son that's John's nephew, so it's John Minor and nephew. Chad Minor. Okay. Yeah, and just okay. <laughs> great guys. I mean, we have a good time. So, I mean, when we got to the hotel, this hotel is like the best Western in, in uh, Lone Pine. And as we're walking down, yep. I'm looking at the names on the the hotel doors, and it's like John Wayne, the Lone Ranger, because these are all <laughs> movies that were filmed in the area. So these are all these, you know, Lone Ranger, John Wayne, and then we get to ours is like a little pony. You know, it's like, wait, I, why do we have a little... <laughs> so that, that, was a, that was a big hit. I'm like, well, you know, how do we get the lone, little pony room? We're the, we're the guys that are yeah, supposed like, to We couldn't for- have got John Wayne. <laughs> no, it's like, we got to change this outfit. Uh, so... Anyways, those guys are good dudes, and and then of course they brought an, another family member um, from from the East Coast, um, Seth, Seth, and then Jonathan. Those those were the two buddies. I didn't know really well, so I didn't know them actually at all. So they were just they were they, and were, they coming were the young through, bucks. Yep, they're coming through Vegas uh, about a couple days before the bad water happened to start. So they're driving through. Uh, bad water was going on while we were right after we got back. Oh no bad, way! Bad water started. Yeah. So we, yeah. So that was kind of cool because we all knew. We know all everybody in that group knew what it meant. Like for those people to do the bad water is just insane. So oh my gosh, that's yeah. What a probably one of the most famous ultras there is. 
Yeah. So, you know, we're always humbled by it. And there's guys that, that that finish at Whitney Portal. The race finishes at Whitney Portal. It's 135 miles, starting at the lowest level in the country, going to going to Whitney Portal. But there's some guys yeah. in, that for tradition that go all the way to the top of Mount Whitney and back after that, which what? is just... <laughs> we didn't believe it. Till, yeah, they, there's a couple guys that will... That will that will go up after oh that race God. and come back down. See, you and I had this conversation uh, a couple days ago when we were prepping for the podcast, and we were talking about like genetic sort of like anomalies, like individuals. It doesn't matter. Like John, I think I, we can kind of categorize John Minor into that. Uh, you know, my yeah. dad's good friend, uh, basically my uncle uh, Boris. Um, I could, I could. It's. I think it's fair to say Boris is probably been up Whitney around a hundred times uh, or more. Um, mm-hmm. He's kind of the dude that would just would literally we'd we'd see him in the afternoon and and he'd be like you know we'd be like where were you? He's like oh I took off at two a.m. last night and and went and climbed Whitney. Um, and <laughs> right. you're like wait what? What do you mean you just like. And you'll be, and you'd ask him like, well, don't you need a permit? And he's like, oh, no, no, you don't need a permit if you go at two in the morning. And I know all the, <laughs> he was a parole officer. So he's like, <laughs> so, you know, that's Boris. And, and so you have these individuals that just have this genetic gift, um, that training, you just can't get their training. <laughs> um, I know so, it's like they're literally built and genetically engineered for endurance and then, of course, just doing the training on top of it just adds to it. But they've already got this this structural thing that's going on that I, that I don't have. Totally. Um, I mean, it's similar to the, what you know sh- uh, the example that we could give is Sherpas. You know that these individuals that grew up, grow up in the Himalayas above ten thousand feet, and there are genetic sort of markers that uh, or adaptations that happen that are passed down through generations because those. Uh, you know, they've been up there so long that the body's adapted. It's pretty amazing. That's I think it's so true. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it, it's something with oxygen delivery. Like, they're, well, we know that their nitric oxide, looking at their blood, is double what ours is, and we can't, we can't yeah. get that. Like you're, you're right, the civilian population, like I always say, civilian, but we cannot get what they have General, in there. Yep. yep, and that's just how they're they're born that way too. Like those that genetic thing. So that's pretty cool. Um, totally. Okay, so, so that's a perfect place to kick it off, I think. Okay. Um, with as far as like, didn't you didn't you do some testing? I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, yeah. I think as far as uh, starting it off, you guys were in the hotel room, and that's when you pulled out the uh, the pulse oximeter and started to do some testing. And mind you, all of these individuals um, don't have any experience with uh, breath work or or respiration training, respiratory training. Um, but they were one of the reasons Mike, we sent Mike up there uh, with these guys is to collect some data for the training course um, and methodology that we've developed. So uh, please do share what you gathered in the hotel the night before or that, that day before you guys took off. Right. Well, the great thing is, is all the guys, which I love, were open to uh Breathwork and the SpO2, they they were they said up front, you know, hey, if you want to measure at any time, just let me know. Some of the guys had watches with SpO2s uh, uh, built in, like I did, and so we were able to check our watches. But I also took a separate meter with me, um, the uh, kind of the basically a medical grade uh, saturation, just to just to make sure we're for accuracy, because uh, you know I don't know how accurate the the watches are. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, we're starting off at, at the hotel uh, and the other two guys, again, real, real quick, Jonathan is an L1 CrossFitter and and also runs like 50Ks. And he's not a guy you would think that would run 50Ks. He's, he's big. He's just a big dude. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that someone, uh, I, I saw the way his build was that he could move like that, that he had that ability to move like that. And then Seth also is, again, another runner. I mean, totally fit. These guys are all uh, fit. And uh, so, yeah, we started out of the hotel and it was, it was amazing because at the first look at everybody's saturation you know of course it's 96 97 that's where we all start and then we move from there so that was at that's at basically high desert what um i don't know what um i want to say Lone pine is that but three four thousand feet yeah a few thousand feet actually yeah. like three or four and okay, so. uh I'm sure the bad yeah, that's water. That's true because that's what Helen is. <laughs> sure, okay. the bad water guys are like. <laughs> I know exactly what that elevation is. Um, but yeah, so then we went up. So the idea was to leave at one in the morning instead of three in the morning, like last time, um, to get back before dark and hopefully, if it all goes well, get a hamburger at the Whitney store. I mean, you you want to eat really bad after that trip. And so the whole goal was to leave early enough <laughs> so that we could make it back for food. That's like the the big thing up there. I feel like that's always the theme when you're doing any extended endurance type of feat in the mountains. Like it doesn't even matter if it's, even if it's like five miles on a day hike, it, it's always that, Oh my God, I can't wait to get back to get a burger. Yeah, it's like, where's that? It's always a burger for me. <laughs> no, totally. It's like, where's that brewery at again? I mean, and you'll see guys running down the trail to try to make that, make that place. Um, so yeah, we started off. So uh, everybody at- was, at good O2 saturation then, basically, like everybody was like high 90s, mid 90s, right? 3,000 feet. And the interesting cool. thing was, yes, and when we tested at like 10,000 feet at different elevations, so we did Horseshoe Meadow test at about 10,000 feet on the first day, and, you know, it falls to about 90%, and it was interesting because everybody's saturation was falling at near numbers. Like we were only a few percentages away from each other, which I thought was really interesting because... What's interesting to me is that even though our saturation was different at different levels, some of us were still reacting differently to the altitude um, in other ways. So I thought that was an interesting uh, observation to kind of kind of look at. Um, so yeah, we started eight, that about eight thousand feet, seven eight thousand feet at Whitney Portal, and this is you'll love this a first night out gathering all our stuff you know we have our our red lights on it becomes a mission oriented thing i have a satellite phone i'm showing the guys (laughs) i mean i i tried i know i appreciated what you said about me trying to be prepared out there because i really do but as you know you can't prepare for every situation even if you've tried um we had uh, i had a satellite phone with the inyo county sheriff's department on the side of the phone so if i was incapacitated anybody could grab that phone and dial out and that's a simple thing but to dial out on a satellite phone, you have to dial 001 first before the number. If you didn't know that, <laughs> if you didn't know that, you'd be you'd be hosed up there. So right, um, right. So, so those little details you try to you try to pin down um, in case something goes wrong. But we're standing in the parking lot, pitch black, nothing. It's quiet, pitch black, and all of a sudden, I hear a lady scream, a primal scream, like I'm about to die. That was the sound I heard. Dang. 
and we all looked. It was loud, and it was like, oh my gosh, someone's in immediate peril. And so we all reacted this differently. Like two in the morning. Uh, yeah, it'd be about one in the morning now, one thirty maybe. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So no way. we had our headlamps on. I start to run in the direction of what I heard and what I could see, because uh, I just felt like I have to. We have to go now and. And we had our hiking yeah. sticks. And if anybody doesn't know, your trek poles are your best defensive weapon. That would, you could put somebody down really <laughs> fast with a trek pole right to the totally. chest. Um, so I'm running over there. And one of the guys, and I wish I knew who it was, either Jonathan or... I like or how your mind went to that. But it sounded like it was a primal scream. Well, I've never heard that before. I've never heard a tone like that that someone can make that you go, someone's about to die. That was the sound. And I never knew that yeah. that was the thing. I just, I'm sure it is a thing. It's a, probably in our DNA and our instincts. But I, and it's also in the male yeah. instinct to run into that to try to protect that person. It's in our DNA. Um, I read this somewhere that our instinctual, even at our own peril, will run instinct. into that. <laughs> so there I go running forward to yeah. see what's going on. Just an automatic reaction. Like, we got to go help somebody's running alongside me like sword out (laughs) but what i loved about this which i was really happy i reacted that way but what i loved even more was chad the pilot who's the guy who's like you know he's just one of those guys that, that pilots are cool that's all i can tell you he stays and is moving behind us looking behind us to see if something's if there's something going on from all behind us, because we're all running forward and he's watching our back. So I thought that was rad that he was like, had the perception like survival mode. Dang. I know. It was so interesting to me. Um, and then by Detective, the time we like survival mode, right. And by the time we got to her, um, she had moved up towards us and we were moving towards her and she was, she was shaking, man. She was just shaking. She's like a bear. She goes, all I did is I went from my trunk to the side <laughs> of my door, went back to my trunk and there was a bear in the trunk trying to get to food. And she freaked out, slammed the, I think the head, the slam, the, she slammed the trunk on the bear's head. Like it slammed on the, ba- the bear. <laughs> and so I'm sure the bear was like, nothing's worth Yeah. <laughs> Probably like scared nothing. the bear just as bad as it. she was scared. <laughs> oh, that scream and then all these headlamps running in that direction, that bear bolted. So it took off. And then we were wide awake. So you had your adrenaline, you had your nervous system, everything's fight or flights, yeah, all that's like a, totally, we're, we're that's totally nice wound up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so then, after, and, yeah. and that was that happened right at the trailhead. That's right at the beginning, um, man. So that's guys, f- dang. So that was the start. So you guys so now you got, would we figure last time you said it was 22 miles round trip? Yeah. So yep. Yeah. 22. Okay. So you had 20, you got 22 miles round trip. You're starting at what? Around two in the morning, like one, two in the morning. Is that when you guys? Yeah. We were on trail. We left at midnight. We were on trail at 1 a.m. Okay. And it's one and thing to think about 22 miles as flat, but it's 22 miles, 11 up all the way uphill and then 11 all the way downhill. So it's the maximum. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. You and I both grew up and have been adventuring in the Eastern Sierra Nevadas for our whole lives, essentially. Um, one thing that I always describe to people here in Montana that haven't experienced the Eastern Sierras um, is how steep the Eastern slope is compared to the Western slope. And, Yosemite would be the the western side, um, and which is uh, what is it, the San Joaquin Valley, and then you got mm. Owens Valley, which is the other side. But if you're like what was always is and was so striking to me as a kid was driving up 
the 395 um in coming into the owens valley and on the left hand side you're just peering up at these giant just alpine mountains the eastern sierras um and then on the right side is is it the white mountains um, yeah that look completely different like their geography the topography it's like it's so different but um you can just tell that the i believe it's the san andreas fault just came right down or comes right down the middle of the owens valley and that's what just drove those you know those plates and they shifted and it just and you could just tell how by how steep the eastern sierras are they're just so majestic and i don't know i've been at that gas station in lone pine so many times like looking up at the whitney peak and you're literally looking up it's not i think that's one thing that's so unique about the Eastern yep. Sierra Nevada mountains, yeah, even down in the valley, you can you can see those peaks versus like the Rockies or some of the other mountains. You have a you perfect know, view of Whitney, view. yeah, yeah, a perfect yep. view of Whitney from the hotel. Every you look up at, it, it's like it's like taunting you because you're like, well, we're going to be up there, and you're looking at these jagged like pinnacles, and you're thinking, yep. where's the where's the trail, man? It looks like a sawtooth up there. So you kind of <laughs> you just you just wonder what it's like. You just in your back your mind, you're like, what is it like up there? Like this is right. this looks gnarly. So you're and staring at that the day before. Now you guys are on the trail, Ed. You're you're taking off. It's pitch dark, headlamps on, and that's got to be something too because. Um, you don't have the extended view and you know, you're on trail. Like what, what was that like? You know, and again, that's why I like going, uh, to the trailhead the day before and hiking a mile or two up. So everybody kind of has a comfort feeling of knowing there's not just sheer cliffs everywhere. Right. Um, cause it is, it's pitch black and you're in that for a good four or five hours of darkness, you know, moving uphill. And so you don't, you don't really have good bearings other than the trail of what's around you. You just don't have any kind of concept of the sheer peaks and the cliffs and everything. Um, so yeah, it's a little, you know, you have to be on your game because, you know, you don't want to stumble or, you know, trip and go over the side or some crazy thing. So, um, that, that day before orientation is huge, but now we're on trail and I'm looking forward to sunrise because, you know, you can't see anything. So 5,000 feet. Yeah. So 8,000 feet. So when we get to about 11,000 feet, we were in the dark the whole time. I took some readings um, when we hit about 10,000 feet. And again, everyone's uh, oxygen saturation was was fluttering around 90%, anywhere from 88 to 92, you know, right in that, that area. And... Everyone was still feeling good, so I didn't, you know, call for a breathwork session. But I kept telling him, "Listen, do these. If you start feeling bad, this is what you want to do." So we went over four eight right from the beginning. I mean, I was like, you know, inhale for four, exhale for eight. Um, you can mm-hmm. pause in there. You can adjust how long that is. If it's too, you can take it to three six. You know, if it's too hard to do. So I really kind of pounded it in that you know this is what you want when it gets bad because. You know, when everybody's feeling good early on, no one's thinking about, oh, it's going to get gnarly later. Nope. So I kept, you know, offering that up and showing them how. And then, uh, sure enough, when we got to about 11,000 feet, we're rolling, 11 to 12, we're rolling into trail camp. And the sun's coming up. So it's amazing because sunrise is happening. It's hitting, you're, yeah. you're literally at base camp and the sun's just hitting. And so that was uh, an incredible sight. And all that's going to be on the videos. I've got, I got a, a video of all of the, all of that stuff. So that'll be coming later. And everybody's I think that's my favorite time in the Sierras that the sunrise, because going back to what we just said about those mountains being so steep, as soon as 
that sun comes up over the white mountains, it just is like, bam, it just lights up everything. Right. And I, and I feel like everybody was still doing pretty well. I didn't notice anything, uh, yeah. which was a really good sign. Because usually by trail camp, people start going south and they know like, ah, this is not the place for me. Like they got to go back down. So that's a, that now, was a good sign. Think that there's, a, there's very, there's, you know, multi factors to that. Um, so it, it seemed like, cause we, I don't think we talked about the two other young bucks. They were young obviously like in the 27 20s, yeah 25 27 20, 28 yeah. somewhere in there so still those resilient like you can get away with a lot in your 20s as we all know um but the variables of like fitness levels and because we, we already know that ot saturation is a thing and the higher we climb uh the less oxygen is going to be available and as we've talked about in previous episodes like the 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 exchange is so important of keeping that oxygen CO2 exchange. So Mike was talking about, you know, the four, eight combo. And essentially that's what, that's what it's doing is making sure as we're ascending up that we're keeping an even exchange of those gases. So that's good news. When you guys made it to first camp, everything was uh, kind of like everybody was in, uh, good on, on the fitness side and uh, from the, the aerobic side and from the respiration side. Right. And the interest that they had, I mean, they, I kept, I talked about nasal breathing and talking about dehydration yeah. and, and they were into it. They were like, man, this is really cool. Tell me more. And, and, uh, they wanted to learn. And I thought that was awesome. And I think, uh, yeah, it was just a great, great to have that kind of co- cooperation and interest in, in breathing right. and properly. And one thing you told me was, uh, I thought this was very interesting, um, and a testament to the course. Uh, or one of the biomarkers, but force rate. Uh, one of them was testing for his firefighter one or going through the academy. And force rate was a test that they use on their firefighters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's- and that and that was Chad, who's the pilot. And he was explaining to me, he goes, man, oh, that was I took- Chad. Okay. Yeah. And he goes, I took that test and I was ready for it. And it was when he's a little younger, he goes, I took that test and I was ready for it. He goes, I was fit when I took that test. But when he was doing the spirometer test, they're like, eh, no, it didn't, you didn't pass on that. And he's like, what do you mean I didn't pass? And so, again, I, I think that respiratory development that you did with the force rate yes. was huge. And that, that again, that, start, that force rate plays in at the summit. Well, I'll tell you about it in a little bit when we get to the summit with him uh, uh, and, what, and doing breath work right. and watching me. Uh, he learned, oh, you know, there's a, there's a different level of breathing. It's kind of like what, I, what happened yeah, when I got to Montana. That. Totally. Okay. All right. So, so you guys take off from that first camp, right? And we're in a drought now. We're in a drought for the Sierras. There's still good water, but it's it's still considered a drought. So <laughs> I got to back up real quick. So the day uh-huh. before we left, um, we met this guy named Crazy Jack, and we didn't know who he was. Chad and I were having this conversation on a bench. We were waiting for the other guys to come back down. And Chad and I are having this conversation. This older gentleman sits down on the bench next to me, but he's at the other end. And so I kind of acknowledged him really quick, but then went back to my conversation. And I regret that because sometimes someone can sit down next to you and you don't know who they are or their background. Uh, and basically for me... I felt like John Muir had sat down to the right of me and, and I didn't know it. And I felt like an idiot. So 
we we were in this engrossed in this conversation about trying to land a plane in Aspen. He's telling me what it's like in Aspen. It's the, one of the hardest landings there there can be uh, because it's surrounded by mountains. And if you don't commit at the last minute, you got to turn that plane sideways and come back out because the mountains <laughs> are so close. So we're having a fun conversation about that and first responders and what they go through in terms of we've talked about the stack trauma stuff. So he's listening to all this. I think I didn't know it. And then we got up to move away for the sun and sat down somewhere else. And then he comes up to us with a picture. He goes, hey, have you guys seen this before? And it's a picture of a ring around the sun or the, uh, I believe it was the sun. It had like a rainbow big circle around it. it was, they're rare, but people do yep. see them. You know, it's kind of a rare thing with, I don't know if it's gases or whatever it is. And so we're like, oh, no, we've never seen those. And so he introduced himself. I mean, I'm Crazy Jack. And so when he said Crazy Jack, I'm like, okay, I got to know how you got the crazy. And he goes, well... <laughs> I'm 75 years old and I've been up Mount Whitney 201 times. I'm like, wow, 201 times I've done Mount Whitney. Now, some of those trips are gnarly because he did a couple of them back to back where he went five of those trips in his 60s. He went up to the top of Mount Whitney, came back down, ate at the Whitney portal, went back up again and came back down. So he did him. He did it twice. Um, Yeah, that could earn the term crazy. Yeah, and he's <laughs> and he's seventy five, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to be going up there tomorrow with you guys hey. too." He goes, "I'll see you guys tomorrow on the trail." But you know, so he was giving us some cool stories. He's like, "Hey, there's some shortcuts on Mount Whitney. Did you know that?" And I'm like, "No." So he's t- he's taking us on <laughs> tour. He's like, he's pointing out places. He's like, "See that trail up there? If you go here, you can save seven tenths of a mile." And all. and I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't know if I want to do that in the middle of the dark, but you know, maybe. Um, but then the other thing he said, he goes, I, 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 know, I don't take any water, water filtration with me. He goes, I know where the natural springs are. He goes, I don't drink out of that lake. Uh, <laughs> he called it Piss Pot Lake, where we go to get our water from. So <laughs> Trail Camp has a lake up there. That's where everybody gets your last water before the last push to Whitney. Yeah. And that's it. And if you don't fill up there, you're going to be hosed. So you fill up there. And then he called it Piss Pot Lake, and nobody wanted to fill up their water. Like Everybody's like, yeah, I'm good. So you're like, where's that spring? Where's that spring you're talking about? Crazy. <laughs> so it was, it was so cool to meet him, and then and then we took off. He was leaving at five in the morning, and this matters. He was leaving at five a.m. We left at one a.m. Four. He left four hours after us. So we're going up the. We're now at trail camp. We're looking at the lake, and it's it's looking a little stagnant. You can tell it hasn't rained in a while. Just had that stillness to it. We're remembering what Jack said, and we're all looking at our water like I got enough water. Like yeah, me too. I don't want to <laughs> fill up here. And we did. We hiked in the at night, so we most of us kept most of our water intact because we were hiking at night. Yeah. You know, so we gambled. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm good. I'm just going to go with the water I have. Even though I did that last time and ran out, I'm like, I think I'm good. So. Anyways, we took off, and that's when the symptoms started to change. Um, you could, I was feeling it, I think, more than last year, even though I felt better in better shape, and this is something that we realized changes. So the barometric pressure, air pressure, everything changes uh, depending on heat and the weather. So elevation can change. Something like 14,000 feet can feel like 17,000 feet, yeah. um, depending on the type of temperature and the, the different things that are happening in the atmosphere. So we were feeling totally. it going up. I was just going to say heat even, and you don't realize uh, right. high heat, how it you know pulls a lot of water, dehydrates you, you realize it probably because basically perspiration is drying faster than you can see or feel it. And you just, I know we experienced that in our, on our Yosemite climb, but right. um, you're totally right. Yeah. There's so many variables every single time. 
And I was teasing John because I'm like, John, you better drink some water. You're going to get rhabdo, man. Because I guess rhabdo is a thing for hikers. Like, it's it's pretty common. I did not know that. But you can get it from, again, it's that heavy exertion. And if you're not eating and drinking enough, uh, the muscle starts to, what does it break? The tissue breaks down and enters the bloodstream and, and you can have a real problem. Yep. So. That's all I have to get John to drink. So I'm like, John, you don't want rhabdo. And he's just, he's just smiling at me because he's not drinking. And I'm like, all right. So anyways, as we're going up to 11, now we're moving towards 12,000 feet. Some of the, you know, everybody's feeling it. Um, I feel like Seth. And this is primarily single track kind of trail. Like, or is yeah. it? Pretty, oh, yeah. Like, what is it? Switchback? Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I should say we're at the base of the 99 switchbacks. So you know, you're pretty okay. tired, uh, and then you've got to hit those 99 and the elevation starting to hit at the same time. So the, the switchbacks seem to be a real grind this time. Um, and I notice I'm remember I hike from the ba- the back. I'm the last person because that's how I can kind of see how mm-hmm. people are doing. And I could see Seth was kind of they kind of when they're not feeling great, they kind of remove themselves from the group in a way. It's like they kind of withdraw. Yep. And. Uh, I was getting that feeling. I'm like, man, are you, you know, are you all right? And he's like, people were asking him and he's just, he's like, I just, I don't feel good. It's like this elevation thing is starting to really hit me. Um, and again, these guys are super fit, but it's just elevation is a, is a different animal. So, you know, I was working with them with the breath work and, uh, you know, that's when it kicks in where you're like, okay, you need to, you need to do this, you know, and if you can slow down a little bit and we were moving slow. Right. I mean, okay. I think this is a perfect time to sort of, uh, Note that uh, we had uh, what you, John, uh, his nephew, and then um, who were the other two? Uh, Seth, uh, um, Seth, and then Jonathan. Yeah, so Seth and Jonathan, the young bucks. Okay, so we all have you guys all have uh, good fitness levels, like baseline fitness, right? Um, where now you're getting into the what you said around ten eleven thousand feet. Nah, we're moving to twelve. We're, we're yeah, okay. So 12, even 13. you know, even more important to where I think this is. Well, I know this is where CO two tolerance starts to become important, very important on top of just your general fitness, your endurance training, your um, your basically your aerobic capacity. Now this is where the CO2 tolerance piece becomes very big because you, I would imagine you guys hadn't hooked up to pulse ox meters at that point yet, but um, you guys are probably all around the same range uh, for O2 saturation. However, with your training, the CO2 tolerance, like really good CO2 tolerance, your symptomology is going to be much different than what they're experiencing, even at the same levels. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, and that yeah. was the case. I mean, I, there's definitely an adaptation yeah. to elevation that happens. Um, and you're absolutely right. CO2 tolerance training, which most people would not do. I, I consider it as important, maybe even more important than doing all the high uphill training that everybody talks about for these big climbs. Yes. I'm like, if you're not doing CO2 tolerance training, you're only doing half the work. That's my opinion from, from what I've experienced. I, I agree. And that's why... You know, we know we have probably the you know most advanced respiratory training system in the world, um, and if there is another one out there, we're not aware of it, um, right? Because this is not something that is talked about. Uh, I had uh, Janelle Day, one of um, one of our partners with Mountain Wellness. She's 
the owner of Peak Physical Therapy, outstanding PT, doctor of physical therapy. And she is just about done with our course. And she was just talking about like, awesome. Uh, basically. Yeah. And it was, and it was, you know, basically like, you know, I didn't really know what to expect when I got into it, but she said, you know, outstanding job. Um, you know, she wanted to let us know that it, it was very, very in depth and, um, she never understood or appreciated respiration training. Um, but the big thing that I was able to, you know, we were discussing is, you know, she's had, I think her, she has a goal of climbing every, the tallest mountain in every state. Mm. And I think she's just about done with most of them in the lower 48. And she's got, what's the one up in Alaska? The, um, the famous one up there is it McKinley? Uh, McKinley, but I think they changed that name recently. Or they, yeah, Kate. But yeah, um, yeah. No, it's Del, uh, it starts with a D. I'm totally blanking on it right now. Oh my gosh! Uh, but so anyway, so she's got, Denali, right? Denali, yeah, Denali, Denali. Okay, okay. So that's like on her radar. She's um, she had a hamstring issue, so she didn't do it this year. But so she's very aware as a mountaineer, someone that's you know going into low oxygen environments, she's looked at a lot of the different elevation trainings out there. And we were talking about like, there's nothing around respiration. Like you, you will find stuff, you know, the whole uh, plenty of articles and stuff on like train high, sleep low, there's elevation tents. Um, there's obviously supplementation, but there's never, there's never anything talked about CO2 tolerance, which is interesting because the freediving community knows the importance of CO2 tolerance. Oh yeah. Um, which is a low oxygen environment, even lower than in a, an, an Alpine environment. So that was a big takeaway from, for her was, right. you know, the importance of developing CO2 tolerance as it relates to performing uh, optimal in, in Alpine environments. And it's just, and we'll get to it because uh, I know you, you got you did some really cool stuff on the summit. That is a testament to that as well. But continue on. So you guys are at twelve thousand feet, ninety nine switchbacks ahead, and you're starting to kind of see uh, the symptomology of altitude in the rest of the team at that point. Well, and I think you made a really good point though in saying that I don't think people realize that you can work your respiratory system CO2 tolerance just like going to the gym for an hour and doing a workout. It's like the same and that and that's going to help you tremendously at altitude because the oxygen saturation levels that we were seeing above 13,000 feet were the same oxygen saturation levels that I can do in my backyard at 500 feet. And when you understand that you can train that at home for high altitude, that changes everything, um, and, and so that's what we're getting. That's what we're that's what we're that's where we're headed right now. So now we're at, you know, we're approaching thirteen thousand feet. We're on the backside of the pinnacles. <laughs> My favorite part because John's looking out. He's looking off those pinnacles. <laughs> he's like, I'm not doing this again. He's got that shaking his head like I'm not. I'm, what am I? What am I doing up here? I'm like, Sean, you put the trip together. So, but you know, and I, I just love it because he's like he's facing his fear again, and I'm like, okay, let's. And he was good. He did way better this time. He's like, all right, let's go, man. So, oh, oh, get this. So the picture. Remember the picture of our online course? Uh, so we did that where yeah. I went out on that. Some guy, We got this random picture of a guy. That's the cover of our course on this rock. So I have this grand idea. I'm going to go out there on that rock. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go step out there. 
you guys get the picture. So I'm like yelling at them to take the picture and I step out there and I'm trying to get this shot and then we get it and I'm like, okay, now I got to go back. And it was weird because when you're, when elevation is messing with your head, you are a little different. You're a little, you're not the same person to a degree. So I was kind of fired up. I'm like, yeah, I feel good. I'm going to go out there on this ledge. And then I turn around and I got to go back and I'm like, oh man. And I started to realize where I was. I mean, it's just literally an outcropping and then it's just thousands of feet down all the way around <laughs> you. And I'm like, oh, okay, Mike, you better slow down. I started thinking about like where you are and who you, you know, who your family is. And so I, I basically crawled back off of that rock because uh, I didn't want anything to happen. But I'm like, you need to slow down, man. You're not a little pony. So, so I, uh, you know, we start heading across the pinnacles, and and it was definitely more comfortable for everybody the second time. Uh, it's a good trail. They've done an amazing job on the pinnacles. It still can be dangerous for a number of reasons, but they've done an amazing job yeah. on that trail. Uh, we got to the windows. All this will be in video stuff, which is going to be fun because we're going to take you through it. But that's when I noticed as we're halfway across the, about the pinnacles, about 13,000 feet, Seth is not doing well. I mean, you could tell he's he's still like you could tell he's struggling with it. He's like, yeah. he's just like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. I'm like, okay, we got to breathe, got to do the breath work. And so, I couldn't tell. I know he was trying. He was just struggling, and I know he was trying to to do the breath work. And I actually think I'm gonna I'm gonna. It might be good to have him on. Um, because I would love to know what he thought, uh, what he, how he was feeling going up, and then what we did at the summit to help yeah. him. But uh, you know, we're taking readings up there, and it's now dropping down, and the saturation's dropping into the eighties, eighty percentile. So you know, you think about uh, wow. You know, here at sea level, if you have COVID and your your percentage is like 91, 92 with COVID, I mean, they're, they're looking to put you at the ER and, you know, and you start dropping below that, they're going to consider a ventilator for you. Um, I mean, at least that's the, that was kind of the general approach. And so, you know, you think about it, you're operating at, at 85%, 80% oxygen saturation, and you're carrying, you know, 20 to 15 pounds and you're walking uphill. So... You're starting to see the, the the debilitating effects. I mean, even on me, I was I was struggling. I was doing good. I didn't have a headache, but you just felt it, and I'm like, dang. Yeah, because so, you're gonna feel it and perform. Like you're definitely gonna feel you're gonna feel it, but you're gonna not experience some of the the general symptomology, like headaches, fatigue, right? Um, kind of swinging back and forth of like, oh, I feel like crap. Like I'm just gonna disconnect from the group. The fact that you were able to, you know, keep an eye on everybody else uh, is also shows, you know, how developed your respiratory system is on top of your fitness level. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. It doesn't like anybody that goes into that environment is going to is going to feel the right. effects of it. And we're talking, you know, so the difference the CO2 tolerance training would make is that extra 10 or 20% where you're not getting the headache. You may feel not great, but the headache's not pounding or, you know, uh, yeah. you're, and so it's just that subtle bit of difference to where it's like, I can still function even though I'm moving slow and I'm really feeling it. I'm not sick. And I, I swear to you that I believe it is because you're just getting that little bit extra oxygen to the brain and to the rest of the system. Because, you know, I did nasal restrictive breathing the entire way. I was breathing. Yep, so you got the nitric oxide. I got all of the nitric oxide, oxygen. Yep. Um, and that's what I was also going to uh, mention. Yep. 
we can't go without mentioning force rate and how that relates to, because we talked about CO2 tolerance, but you guys are also pushing, now you're pushing your physical limits. Uh, you're, you're moving into that endurance sort of like, you know, uh, sustain, long sustained aerobic endurance on top of being in a low oxygen environment. So now fitness levels are being tested um, and going back to force rate, how developing a strong, especially, uh, well, basically the, the ability to take in, uh, take air in and exhale out in a big exchange of, of air, basically um, a lot quicker, especially the exhale is really important to maintain that even exchange. So it's like CO2 tolerance to combat the, the general symptomology of elevation, but then now also the force rate to maintain good CO2 uh, oxygen balance in the system, even though you're starting to push your physical limits. So there's like two big factors right there uh, where that respiratory training is benefiting you versus the guys that haven't done it. And you're right. seeing it firsthand. You're like watching it. Right. And even though I'm struggling, okay. it, so yeah, so you're, so you're right. I mean, it's, there's no other way to, to do it. And, and, and I think on, I think it's on Mount Rainier or Denali, one of those two peaks, they, they, the guides there, I believe teach what's called back pressure breathing, which we talked about with Kurt Wedberg and bit with Kurt. Yep. And I, and I, I think on our, in our course, we made, I think like nine improvements to back pressure breathing. I think eight or nine improvements to it because it's there. I believe they're doing a part of it through the mouth and look, it's going to help you up there because they're trying to maintain a balanced system. That's what they're trying to do essentially. But, you know, mm-hmm. using the mouth, um, I think the nostril breathing, as we know, just because of the background of it and the oxygen exchange, the uh, less of a, uh, what is, how would, what do you call that? Less of rest, lower respiration rate. It's just the exchange is and it- better. And in the ability to humidify the air, I think that's another one that we haven't talked about all that much. But uh, maintaining good hydration, because uh, those more alpine, like the higher the altitude is, uh, it just starts to the air's drier. Um, you know how it is; like your lips chap, like the UV index is higher. Like it's just so much more taxing on the body. Um, so if you're gasping, if you're like you know, load on your back, grinding up these 99 switchbacks, getting pounded by the sun. Um, like you're just, you're pushing your limits. Like you're, you're, and by maintaining nasal breathing, I think it really helps to maintain hydration and it really helps to Ah. humidify the air coming in. And it's, it, that's such an advantage because of, uh, uh, drying out, like breathing through your mouth and hyperventilating. And that doesn't mean like, super hyperventilating, not like, you know, hysterical hyperventilating, right? Just heavy gasping, like (sighs) fast. Yeah. Fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's now you're talking about once your, your airways start to dry out, that's going to cause some downstream inflammation. So now you're talking about restricted airways because of the inflammation. And that's just, you know, now you're going to have trouble breathing through your nose and your mouth and, and not trouble where you're, you're having trouble getting air in, but oxygen utilization, um, ox- oxygen uptake. Because, you know, if you're, like I said, if you're, you're inflamed um, in your airways, that's not optimal for respiration versus 
maintaining nasal breathing, get, getting that big nitric oxide dump along with the humidified air and maintaining that good moist uh, environment in your lungs and in your airways. It's, it's really important. And I, you're right. And I think it's just, it's, it's being conscious too. Uh, with the training, you're conscious of how you're breathing. I mean, you have to really focus when you're, when you're that disoriented, I, I, I would say. It's kind of a disorientation feeling. Um, so that focus on your breath and everything becomes, <laughs> all these minute things become really important. It's, yeah, it's the anchor. Like it's the RPM gauge. It's, it, there's so many things about the breath. Okay, so you guys are grinding up now. Um, what's the next sort of big uh, realization or, or challenge or thing you started witnessing with the, the group? Yeah, so now we're we're heading up to the summit. Um, we're on the the last probably half mile, and it's just kind of a straight up at an angle um, to get to the to the. Everybody looks for the the little cabin hut thing up there. Uh, we all look for that as our landmark, and as we're moving up to it again, I, I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling it. Where everybody's kind of feeling it, but I'm definitely feeling it as well. Um, and when I, I guess when you describe feeling it, it's just the lack of air pressure. So, but you're not in headaches now. Someone else might have mountain sickness by then, be throwing up. Um, in fact, Crazy Jack was saying he's been on at least a dozen rescues up there. He climbs yeah. it so much that he just there's nobody up there. So whoever's up there, you become one of the rescuers and. You know, he's run across it all. I mean, Whitney is a place that everybody can get to, but a lot of people are just completely unprepared. Um, that's a that's a not a good thing. But yeah, so we reached the top, and I was I was excited to be at the top. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so I've got six percent left on my phone battery, and I'm like, I got to do these readings right now. <laughs> so I'm. Um, you know, I kind of isolated myself a little bit and was doing the readings. Once I realized everybody was kind of good, everybody felt good. Um, yeah. And so I'm working on my readings and I'm looking at my oxygen saturation. When I first turned it on, it was like 79%. And I was like, wow. Like, whoa. Yeah. So I knew I felt, I felt like it too. You know, I mean, even though I trained at that oxygen level yeah. for 10 minutes at a time at home, um, doing my breath holds up there, it, it, you know, you're there the whole time. <laughs> There's no, constant. so yeah, yeah. It's constant. So I'm, I'm doing, so I remember when I started, I was like, okay, so I got to bring this saturation level up like quick. So I raised it up to like 79, 80. So about 91, 92% is where I first started to peak out, which, and I felt amazing. I felt so much better, just that 10%. And that was within minutes, correct? Oh yeah, no, it'll you know you can get there in yeah. three, four, five minutes pretty quickly. So um, you you guys realize what you know Mike's saying right now because I it's really hit me over the last few days or you know last week since Mike's been up there testing. Going back to what we were saying, you know, in the beginning of the show, like this is not talked about. Like there's never any conversation in at least that I'm aware of, of raising O2 levels at the summit or, you know, in an Alpine environment. Like there's so much talk about preparation. How do you prepare for performing an altitude? You know, are you sleeping in a tent? Are you training high, sleeping low? Um, are you doing all these things um, to prepare? But there's, there's no conversation about how do we utilize our breath in the, in altitude to bring O2 levels up. And, and as Mike's saying, like, dude, this is, Mike is super fit. Like he's fit. He's been training 
his respiration respiration system for a long time. Amazing CO2 tolerance. But at the summit, at 14,505 feet, he had an O2 saturation of 80%. Like anybody who has O2 saturation of 80% is going to feel like shit. Um, They're going to be really struggling. But the yeah. fact that you... Right. The fact that you felt like you did and you're able to bring O2 levels up in a matter of minutes. And why don't you tell the people how you felt after you did that? Well, and here's the thing. I didn't expect to have low levels. I mean, I didn't expect, I expected to have low levels, but I didn't that low. expect to have the feeling that I had of like, this elevation is kicking my butt right now. So what I tried to do first is call you on the satellite phone. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to call Corey right now just to say, hey, and, and uh, from the peak. And as I'm and dialing I, like, ignored number, it like it was spam. <laughs> I know. I was, so, I was so pissed. I'm like, come on. This is so, because so, I had to dial the number three different times because I was disoriented enough that I had to keep punching in the number slowly and it kept coming back. Invalid number. I'm like, no, it's not. So I'm arguing with the phone, you know, and people are looking at me. And I realized, oh, I'm disoriented. So that's when I pulled out. I go, I got to do my reading right now. And sure enough, it was like 79%. And I was like, oh, okay. So as soon as I raised it up to 91, 92, I felt amazing. And I was able to, it's like you go from being, it's almost like going from having four beers or, or to where you're really buzzed to complete clarity. And like, you just got rid of it and you felt, that's how it kind of felt. So I felt amazing immediately able to dial and function and again you're leaping around on rocks up there so if you don't want to have 75 80 percent uh oxygen while you're jumping around on rocks and wandering around that's why there's so many injuries and rescues on whitney it's if people do not realize if you're operating with oxygen saturation 80 percent, you are in a bad way and they don't even realize that so anyways i so then as i'm doing that uh chad comes over he goes, hey man, will you take my SpO two? I'm like, sure. So we're so we're one at a time. They're coming over, and I'm just and this is all organically. I didn't call <laughs> them over, and because we had yeah. been testing them all the way up, and that'll be in the videos, in more videos, modules that we have coming. But we were testing those O2 levels on the way up, and so I wanted to show them. Yeah, you know what? I, one of the guys is at like 75. percent I'm like, dang, and that might have been Seth. Dang. And I'm thinking 75% O2, that's getting down there. Um, and he goes, I felt, he goes, he goes, I feel horrible up here. He goes, I was laying on a rock over there doing four, eight and it helped me feel better. And so then I came over to take a reading and he, and I'm like, yeah, it's still, it's still pretty low. So Dang. we start. And so it's cool because I'm sitting there across from where he's got the SpO2 on his finger. He's raising his oxygen saturation. He got up to 96% when we started working. And I go, and I, and I could just look at the O2 saturation and go, oh, you have to feel amazing right now. You must feel great. And he's like, yeah, he goes, I just want to keep doing this breath work. I mean, he was, he got it. Like, <laughs> like he understood the difference of feeling horrible and feeling better. Um, and the thing it's hard is it's, it's, it's somewhat temporary. Like you have to continue to do the breath work at times. You can't just stop it, forget about it because it will slowly go back down. So you know, we're doing the breath work at the top. We're moving uh, as we're going back down. You know, we're taking those those pauses and those breaths in to kind of maintain that saturation. Um, and so that yeah, that makes sense because you're being pushed. Uh, like you're having, you're putting more demand on your all systems in the body. Um, and it makes sense even at rest that you would have to maintain 
a higher respiration rate than average, like than your baseline at sea level or at, you know, not in that environment on top of uh, moving more air in and out, even in a resting position. And that's why the 4.8 is so advantageous because it's reinforcing um, the full inhale or let's just say 75% of, you know, lung capacity, inhale, exhale. So you're getting good oxygen exchange and, and good oxygen CO2 exchange, basically. But if you just went back to normal, you know, just normal standard breathing, I could see where those O2 levels would start to, to drop just because of the environment you're in. So well, you just brought up a, a really good point about uh, lung capacity because if I'm doing all this training at sea level also, I've probably expanded my lung capacity. So that, again, you know, if you're getting 10, 20, 30% more lung capacity up there, that little bit is the difference between you having a headache or not, or the guy laying next to you who just feels horrible and you're just, you're, you feel it, but you're good. And so every, all that training is, is huge. It all makes a difference. Um, you know, and again, I, well, yeah, the last, Go ahead. Sorry, I, I just want to without. I don't want to go without mentioning. We've mm-hmm. talked about CO two tolerance. We've talked about force rate, but uh, with lung capacity and then also aerobic capacity, that's where you know the third piece of this. Um, you mentioned uh, jumping around on rocks with eighty percent O two saturation. Now that goes back to the training model that we put together on how to develop capacity with the closed balance system. So, um, and you can do that in a number of ways. Like we show you in the course, how to do it in a circuit, you know, basically your the goal is to maintain nasal breathing, um, through the whole circuit. And if you can't maintain a movement, you put the implement down or you stop the movement altogether until heart rate comes down and you can maintain nasal breathing and continue on. But what that's also doing on top of building CO2 tolerance is it's, it's, it's developing the capacity on top of the CO2 tolerance. So in a workout, you're, um, same things happening. Like your, your O2 levels are going to drop as you get into those VO2 max or like full max effort anaerobic zones, basically zone three and on. Um, if you can, if you can do that in your, basically in your training and your anaerobic training, you're going to develop the capacity, which is going to then benefit you up in elevation because it's like you can drop your, essentially basically what's happening is you can drop your O2 levels, pushing yourself in a workout. And that same type of stimulus on the body is you're going to experience in that environment. So you're going to operate better. Like even though you're at 80% saturation, you've developed the capacity Mm -hmm. at at that CO2 level right to perform much better yeah just if that function makes sense because now we're, we're getting we're getting nerdy now but um the capacity is a big component because you could just do uh, here's an easier way to uh to put it we could just do intermittent hypoxic breath holds like free divers do right and that's going to develop co2 tolerance um but we can also develop co2 tolerance and capacity um basically doing the closed balance system, maintaining nasal breathing in those anaerobic zones. So doing like a CrossFit style workout, like a really, like you're pushing it um, outside of that aerobic zone. And and when I say aerobic, uh, usually when you're in your 
like a good aerobic zone, you can maintain a conversation. So like if, if Mike and I were running down, um, like running together, that would be, and we were just carrying kind of a casual conversation. Um, that would be like a, an aerobic zone versus like you get into more of a circuit based, um, workout where you're doing box jumps, kettlebell swings and pull-ups like Mike and I are not going to be able to carry a conversation in that. So when I talk about zones from aerobic to anaerobic, so basically if you start training the closed balance system, nasal breathing in those anaerobic zones or VO2 max, you're developing your capacity. So you're pushing those CO2 levels pretty high um, because of the demand of oxygen that's needed in order to maintain those aerobic, that, that capacity, um, that's going to benefit you like up in, on the summit at 14,000 feet, 15,000 feet, because we already know that O2 levels are going to drop. Um, and then as you know, Mike was saying, like you have low O2 levels, but you're also jumping around on, on the pinnacles and all these rocks and these steep drop-offs and uh, your cognition is going to be highly effective. And yes, by so you're not making good decisions. Your fine motor skills are affected, like all these things. So yep. essentially, if you're doing that type of anaerobic work training with the closed balance system, it's going to help to develop capacity. So even though you're at a lower CO2 level, or I'm sorry, a lower uh, oxygen level, cognition is still going to be, you know, it, it not affected as bad. Um, and then even your physical, like your your ability to move and perform. So. Dude, it's like those three biomarkers are so damn important. It's crazy. And, and well, that, like, that's yeah. just a testament to it. And I think you brought up something really important because Chad was watching me do the breath work up on Whitney and he was mimicking me. We were sitting across from each other and he's, you know, taking him through it. Yeah. And he's like, he's looking at me and he's realizing I'm not doing it like that. And the, the point is, you know, in the course, we have these different breath. We have a few breath work techniques, we don't have 20. Because the ones that we have, if you do them really well, you don't need um, other ones. And so right. he was watching me do the breathing, and he's like, "Wow, you're." St I mean, my whole stomach's moving. You know, my 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 ribs are expanding. I'm doing the wave. I'm really moving the air. And he was realizing he wasn't. I mean, his he he was breathing, but he wasn't taking it in uh, as forcefully. And I don't I don't want to say forcefully, but I don't know. Maybe there's a better word for it, but deeper. And so. You know, I'm really moving that air and, and pushing and getting that air PSI, deeper. PSI, basically, yeah. pressure, like you can force rate. So not straining force from the muscular standpoint, but the actual ability to uh, move air quicker with more force. So mm -hmm. um, that that output, that, you know, right. blowing, basically. Uh, yeah, and I could... To, to blow. Yep. Yeah, and I could tell a light bulb went off and he's like... Oh, he's like, I need to, you know, and I told him, like, I want to see that belly move, man. I want to see that chest. I want to see everything <laughs> rise. You know, if it's not rising, it's you're not getting that air down there. It's a workout. It's and so, again, that's just a really good point about we don't, you know, the it's like box breathing. A lot of people have heard of it, but how well are you really doing it? You know, uh, and so, you know, you need to be taught those mechanics, which you went over really well in the course. It's like we need to; those mechanics are very important. The subtleties, you know, right? And understanding why, like I, yeah, you know, I've always been the type of like, okay, well, why is it working? So box breathing, you know, um, it, it's it's effective and it works, uh, but once you understand what is going on physiologically, like why is that? Why is box breathing so effective? Like, and, and we talk about that in the course. 
all it comes down to is if you extend your exhale, it downregulates the nervous system into a parasympathetic state. And it, it's really simple and makes complete sense if you think about it from the primal standpoint. If, if there's a threat and we need to get away from something that could potentially hurt us or kill us, um, respiration rate goes up. It, and when respiration goes up, that means that the, you, the other things that happen is blood is shunted to the extremities because you're ready to run. Uh, cortisol from the, the you know stress hormone, which is, is good, like there's always a lot of negative things about cortisol, but it is, and adrenaline. So there's a big spike of cortisol and adrenaline. That's good in that situation. Um, but if we're having that all the time or artificially kind of like having those stimuluses, box breathings, it's, it's literally a way to, to gain control of your nervous system and just downregulate that response, that sympathetic response. Um, and that's it. I mean, it's like the breath is such a powerful tool to modulate the nervous system. I mean, we can go the opposite way. That's a downregulate. That's like a rest, digest, calm down. Uh, but we can do the opposite with the intermittent hypoxic uh, breath holds. Developing CO2 tolerance is a stress response. That's a sympathetic response on the body. Um, and I think that's why, uh, Mike, you're aware of you know some of the conversations that are going around in the breathwork space around uh, tinnitus and some of these Wim Hofers that are experiencing tinnitus and ringing into the ears. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard in through you know the last. 10 years kind of being in the human performance space and following a lot of um, like uh, former operators, special force guys, especially like EOD explosive. Like a lot of those guys have um, tinnitus in the ears. Mm. But when I heard that, I kind of suspect like maybe there might be something more going on where with PTSD combat syndrome, like basically um, with the hyper aroused nervous system in constant, just like, go, 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 go. Maybe there's some type of of symptom where it causes this tinnitus because, uh, you know, if you're doing that Wim Hof style breath work constant, um, like even multiple times a day, that could be a stress response that you don't want to have. And there might be some downstream effects of that. So there's got to be, got to be smart about it. Like, um, I, I know when I first started and I'm not knocking Wim Hof, Wim Hof is that's the reason why I is probably, he's probably the number one, um, practitioner or influencer in the, in my breathwork journey, just because of the impact he's, uh, his technique had on me. And then also, uh, I think he's just brought so much awareness to the power of breathwork. Um, but I'm happy to see that because of that, now we have research and, um, you know, sort of the human performance spaces embrace that, but we want to know why it's like, you know, what's, what's really going on here. Um, we want to be able to explain it. And that's, you know, why we developed our methodology around improving three biomarkers of respiration, because you can't, it's, it's quantifiable. Like you can't, you can't argue with O2 saturations when you're at the summit, when Mike's looking at them, like, Oh, I'm at 80%. Like, no wonder I feel the way I do. Um, so anyways, you, you know, guys summited, that was <laughs> go, you got some thoughts. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's just related to kind of some of the stuff you're saying, but uh, it all kind of came back for me on this trip to 20x your experience in 2013 with Mark Divine and Sealfit when you got yes. when they put you through that all day long, just complete beatdown and grinder. So if you don't know, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Corey was uh, participated in Sealfit in Texas, and they put him through basically a crossfit wad that was all day long so you guys had all these different evolutions uh, happening and not just physical but also mental so they were basically wearing <laughs> wearing you guys out slowly all morning long and then when you guys were about done and you were falling asleep standing up so you understand the state you guys would have to be in to be falling asleep standing up then they called you outside yelled at you get outside and then they started hosing you guys down <laughs> with hoses and soaking you guys <laughs> And so stage two was like a hyperthermic kind of, you know, you guys were freezing cold, uh, still doing workouts, and they were, you know, they just, the cold is an equalizer, as we know, it doesn't matter your fitness level, you get enough cold in your body and you're, you're going to be in a bad way. And I realized at the summit, I'm like, this is a 20x experience because no matter how fit you are, we're not using water now, we're using oxygen deprivation. So, you know, if you're at 75, 80% oxygen saturation, I don't care who you are, you're in a bad way. And uh, except up there, there's no coaches. Well, in this instance with the group, I was basically the coach to kind of help them. Like, you feel bad, do this. It's not, you know what I mean? That was kind of my role. My role was two things on this group trip, which I really realized, which was to help support John and be the kind of the backup for everybody on stuff that they may not know. And then to take readings from Mountain Wellness to kind of do some testing up at the summit. And I realized after all of this experience, um, and and I never really realized this when you went through Seal Fit until now, it's like, it wasn't, it was something Mark said initially in his speech. It was like the first thing he said when he started talking. He said, take your eyes off yourself and put them on and focus on your teammate. And I I remember hearing it. I remember that sounds so great. But I don't think I ever practiced that when I was on the trail. <laughs> and then here I am on the trail because that's when you need it. You need someone to back you up because you're all alone out there. And it's whoever you're with is your partner, your rescue partner, your, your teammate. And I realized looking out like i had these five guys up there and i'm trying to think ahead of time what they so i brought the sat phone i brought extra first aid i brought all these extra things and i i fixed john's blister with the toe condom uh when we were up at the (laughs) we were at the summit uh i know uh seth had a had uh oxygen you know i was trying to raise his oxygen saturation level so he'd feel better coming down jonathan ran out of water and he's a big dude and i'm like oh my gosh he's out of water and all i had was about maybe a quarter left in my uh, smart water. So I gave him a swig. I was like, we'll just share this on the way down. But then John's like, I don't drink any water. So here, take mine. I was like, dang. He gave him a whole like, <laughs> he gave him one of his water bottles. Like, He's got like a whole jug left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I just realized like, like a camel. He is. He won't eat, won't drink. And it just, it's just crazy. So I let him just do his thing. But, you know, I realized it, it was really a, that 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 twenty x thing is more than physical fitness. It's about you know taking care of the people up there and the people around you and making sure they're good. Uh, I, it kind of hit me as like this is such an important thing, and I and I feel like on the mountain, it's our tendency as a species to be the fastest on the mountain, to be the highest performer on the mountain, to be all these things. I'm Joe Fitness, all this stuff, and it's I I I, and it's not. How's the guy doing behind me? How's the guy feeling over there? Why is that person throwing up? Why is that person doubling over? It's like, 
I learned to just focus on what's going on around me, the people around me. And I feel like if that would happen on the mountain, it would be a safer experience because we have ultra runners up there. We've got guys running it and they look at the hikers as you're in my way, get out of my way kind of feeling. I mean, Jack talked about that. He's like, I used to elbow people, get out of my way. I'm trying to get to the top. And so we've tethered ourselves to this imaginary time thing that we're trying to beat our time, our best time, whatever it is. And the people in front of you are in your way and they don't matter. And it's like, I don't think that's the right approach to climbing a mountain like that. I think the, the people that are out there are the only people you have in a rescue situation and you should be watching out for them and they should be watching out for you. And I realize this whole mountain needs like that 20x experience of what it feels like to watch out for a team. I feel like that would be, you know, I feel like that's so important. I think that that would be a better, better experience for everybody out there. That's why I love the team. Uh, anything team, whether it's like competitive sport, uh, like I did with Kenny and CrossFit LA. Um, well, even going back to my youth as a competitive athlete, but um, and then you're right from seal fit to even Whitney, there's a, the shared experience of going through something that like tough mm-hmm. um, becomes part of the memory. Like, it's not just like, Oh, we made it to the summit. You know, as you told the story today, it's like, you, you know, talking about the lady who, was screaming bloody murder <laughs> and you guys ran over there. Like that was part of the shared experience um, right. that you guys had. Um, and I'm sure that the guys would have, you know, some other things to share about their experience that was you know, completely outside of just making it to the summit. So you're so right. I was even thinking about our backpacking trip that we did the 20 lakes basin. Cause I felt like such crap on that trip. Like, and there was moments where, um, well, there is moments where everybody at one at some point is going to not feel that great. And when you have a dialed-in team where you're really aware of who you're with and you pick up on those signs, it's cool because other people are like, "Hey, like Mike's not. I can tell Mike's not feeling well. Let's like let's swoop over there and check it out. Let's, let's see if he needs some water. Let's see if he needs some uh, some food." Uh, well, my dad. Remember my dad when he went on that trip? You know, he showed up with like basically a day pack and. Mm. Um, like a tiny water bottle and no snacks. And we're like, kind of like John, <laughs> my dad's a lot like John total with, freestyle with yeah. too. Yeah. And it, and you know, you and I are like, Oh my gosh. Like, but I know my dad probably appreciated the times we came in and, and had those, you know, like, Hey, I can tell you're not feeling that well. Like here, here's electrolyte pack and here's, here's a little bit of fueling. And so it's, and well, even you, uh, on the emotional side, like remember mm-hmm, Rob, like was going, absolutely. he lost his dad. We had like such a, a mo- like a, just a, um, a moment. I don't even know mm-hmm. how to describe it, but uh, healing on his part, on his part, you know, he had recently lost his dad a few weeks before that. And he went on this backpacking trip with us, but you know, we probably were disconnected from you guys for a good 20, 30 minutes. Um, I remember, mm-hmm. but it just felt right. Right. We just stopped and we were, we were just, we took our packs off and we were just sitting there talking. Um, so, totally yeah, the mountains, man. the trail is a, a, a special place for those kind of moments. I mean, you, you, yeah, you know it. I mean, you, you diagnosed Cameron back in the day when we were at, in Texas when he had heat exhaustion. And I don't know how you figured it out, but you were like, he's not well. We need to take him inside. I didn't catch it and you did. So, 
I've just learned to be more observational of the people around me and not so eye focused. And that was the one thing I learned about this experience uh, that made it way more special for me that I could be that person to try to watch out for other people. You know, I thought that was a, I thought that I thought I grew from that more than I have in any other uh, experience. I love it, dude. A great place to end it. All right. Um, now you're like, of course, it, it's got me thinking about something challenging. Uh, Kelby and I are talking about doing Casey Peak here sometime in the nice. next couple weeks. So. He's the guy, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, I know you're inspiring him a lot with some of the stuff you're doing. So we'll see. I th- maybe we can get to team together next year for Whitney and Michael be guiding. <laughs> That's what I'm <laughs> thinking. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I think that would be a fun thing, a fun challenge for us. It's, it's definitely a 20 X. It definitely is. Yeah, totally. All right. Uh, you guys know where to find us. Uh, mountainwellnesslife.com. You can check out everything we got going on. Uh, the respiratory training course is there. Um, and the your, or, uh, your discount code is still available if you use the code or if you use code tribe all caps that'll get you twenty percent off. Um, and yeah, that's that's all I got on the announcements. You got anything, Mike? You want to leave them with? Yeah, just one last thing. So crazy Jack. The guy who went up to uh, Whitney 200 times, we left at one in the morning. He left at five in the morning and he caught us just before the summit. Oh my God. And I couldn't believe it. He goes, Hey guys, I'm here. And I'm like, Oh, like I, I want to be excited, but like, how did you do that? But here's the great thing about Crazy Jack as we're going down, we're, we're, the, the hamburger place closes at eight o'clock and we're at like seven o'clock and we're not going to make it. So the two young guys tried to run down to catch the place before it closes. And we know where the shortcut is. And we're like, we got to take that shortcut. So we come across and we find it <laughs> and we're like, Oh my gosh, should we do it? What if one of us gets hurt? Cause it's really steep. And so we just went for it. We're just like skiing down this mountain to get to the hamburger. And he made it. We got there like 45 minutes before they closed and he shaved like seven tenths of a mile off of the trip. And we were so stoked. I was like, man, <laughs> that was the whole, I mean, crazy Jack. He gave us that one thing. He was like curly. In he liked you guys. City Slickers. Do you remember City oh Slickers? Oh my gosh. In He's City totally Slicker. that yeah, guy. Dude. He's like, I've got the one, <laughs> the one thing. It's like, he totally had that vibe. Just a cool dude. So yeah, no. Just, with his eyes open. <laughs> totally. I love I, it. Dude, that's a classic flick. So yeah, I, I would say the one thing is just watch out for who you're taking up there because you might be feeling great and they might be feeling horrible and they don't even know how to articulate it. So just, you know, be the best team player by watching out for the other guys or girls. Yeah. And if you can't find a good teammate, you can always reach out to someone like Kurt Wedberg. With, uh, oh yeah kurt's a legend too. Sierra international yeah always a good idea to go with an outfit and a guide anyways amazing episode uh i'm ready to to go get outside and enjoy this montana weather uh the heat is on everybody's out on the trails good time awesome uh so yeah that's it man um i hope you guys have an amazing couple weeks and Catch you guys on the next episode. Yeah. Yeah.
We're out. Peace. <laughs>